When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, it has been one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. Putin thought he would easily invade Ukraine and take over the country. Instead, Ukrainians have put up a strong defense and have fought the Russians at every point. It's been incredible to watch Ukraine unite to save their country. However, many of us wonder what will come next. Will there be a ceasefire? Will Putin ever agree to back down? Will Putin invade other countries that were once part of the USSR? On this first anniversary, I wanted to have a thoughtful discussion about what's happening in Ukraine. And I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Victoria Coates. She is the former National Security Council Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Strategic Communications under President Trump, and currently a Senior Research Fellow for International Affairs and National Security in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. Victoria, Welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, thank you for having me on. First of all, just your general thoughts about Biden's trip to Kiev and then to Poland. What do you think was accomplished by that? Well, it unfortunately looked to me very much like the nascent Biden re-election campaign, sending the president out to capture B-roll. You know, I think it is appropriate that the president would go to Kiev, given the scale of the U.S. support for the war in Ukraine. But it really worries me, Newt, to have a president of the United States on a train for 10 hours, on the ground for five hours, then on a train again for 10 hours, when Vladimir Putin knows exactly where he is because they tipped the Russians off in advance. That seems to me a really shocking use of the president's time and risk to his security. And I think all Americans are wondering why he couldn't have stopped by East Palestine, Ohio, before making this arduous journey. 
Well, and I'm also curious why they didn't just fly Air Force One into Kiev. I mean, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely that the Russians would have interfered because that would be an act of war against the United States. But I guess what I'm confused by is it seemed to me it was a nice PR stunt, but we're not sending them the equipment they need. We're not moving at the speed we need to move at. And it strikes me that a lot of Ukrainians are dying unnecessarily because the Western alliance is so bureaucratic and so timid and so unwilling to fully equip them. They have to have a qualitative edge because they'll never match the Russians person for person. What's your general thought about how over the last year the West has responded to this direct assault? Well, that's really what's so frustrating about this. As you said in the intro, the Ukrainian people have put up a remarkable and in many ways inspiring fight for their sovereignty and their freedom. And so there's a lot to work with here, which a year ago we didn't think we had because we thought we were having the three-day war. There would be an insurgency. Zelensky would go into exile and we would somehow support the insurgency to try to make Putin's life miserable. But by April, it was clear that was an intelligence failure. And intelligence failures happen. No source of information is perfect. What matters is what you do when you realize what the actual facts on the ground are. And I don't see any evidence that either the Biden administration or Berlin or Paris really got a handle on the fact that the Ukrainians could win this thing. They still don't seem to have a handle on it. And every time we increase aid to the Ukrainians, there's six weeks of hand wringing in the press, which I'm sure delights Putin to watch that going on. And we never have had out of President Biden a clear strategy. You know, now we're in it to win. And what does that look like? Because for me and what we've defined at the Heritage Foundation as a sort of a red line is not having this happen again. You know, this is Putin's third incursion, first Georgia, now twice into Ukraine in the last 15 years. And what last thing I want to do is to have us sitting here in five years having a similar conversation because he's taken a bite out of one of the Baltics. From your perspective, does winning mean driving them back not only out of western Ukraine, but out of the whole region in eastern Ukraine, which has been sort of an insurgency since 2014? I really think the question of what is going to be the territorial integrity of Ukraine is a question for Kiev. I think the question for Washington is ensuring that the Russian military is sufficiently degraded and Putin's political calculus is changed. So he realizes that it would be more damaging to him to take another military adventure, given the state of his armed forces, and that that would be what could potentially really undermine his power. So in my mind, the key is to prevent him from having that happen again. I personally think he should not be rewarded in any way for this devastating, shockingly violent and horrific war. And so ideally, yes, he would not gain any additional territory from this invasion. I think part of the schizophrenia in the Biden administration and in Western Europe is that a real fear that if they were to decisively defeat Putin, that he would lash out in ways, whether nuclear or otherwise, that people have not really thought through how they would cope with. Well, there's certainly always a risk. And, you know, as we've learned from hard experience, when you do decisively defeat 
a dictator like Putin, there's always a worse monster waiting in the wings. And so certainly we have to think through very carefully, you know, what the U.S., what the NATO role would be in the event that Putin is defeated. And I think sort of along those lines, you know, paying very close attention to what happens to the various storage units for the Russian nuclear arsenal is something I hope the Pentagon is spending a lot of time on, because if Russia were to sort of start to kind of break apart, you would have then a series of these nuclear-harmed statelets across Eastern Europe and Asia, and that's hardly desirable. So there are many, many dangers to this. And the problem, though, is that the Biden administration approach, which is to try to kind of balance this thing and, and, and not go too far in any direction, has resulted in this grinding stalemate that's gone on for a year. And the most concerning thing to me is the reporting in the Wall Street Journal last night that the administration is considering releasing intelligence of China sending actual weapons to Putin for Ukraine, which is tantamount to saying they have the intelligence if they're considering releasing it. But I think they need to get that in front of the American people immediately, because what that means is that deterrence has not only failed to stop Putin from invading Ukraine. It's also failed with Xi and China. Don't you see, though, a clear Russian-Chinese alliance with Russia, ironically, now as the junior partner? Indeed. And I think that we can add something to the axis of evil there, which would be Iran, because the Iranians are fully participant in this as well. And that's really going to be a conundrum for the administration because they have not done anything significant to ratchet up sanctions against Iran. They've had a couple individual, I would call them photo op designations, but nothing serious like the maximum pressure campaign that we worked on in the Trump administration. And if indeed they have clear intelligence that China is shipping arms to Putin, and they don't respond with the kind of extremely strong economic sanctions that would really get Xi's attention, this could be a tipping point in favor of Russia, because I don't think Xi is going to have any of the sort of concerns or niceties about escalation that the Biden administration has. At the same time, I saw one reference that we were going to release $7 billion in frozen assets for Iran in a prisoner exchange deal. There are a couple of things going on. They both starting to peel back the sanctions and then a kind of reprisal of the Obama era pallets of cash for prisoners arrangement, which is just extraordinary. This is sort of a shift of topic toward Iran, but we're at this amazing moment in Iran where protests have been going on for months now in a much more focused sort of organic fashion than we've seen in the past. And now is not the moment to be sending resources to the mullahs in Tehran to give them a lifeline so they can hang on and impose their surveillance state on the people of Iran. So it really is amazing, especially given the fact that the Iranians are sending drones to Russia. They are looking at setting up a drone factory in Russia. I mean, why would you be rewarding them for this sort of behavior? How do you explain the sort of Obama, John Kerry, Biden fascination with Iran and willingness to do almost anything to try to find a way to accommodate the Iranians? Well, I think it starts with a basic misassumption that the Iranians are reasonable. And this, I think, became prevalent during the Rouhani administration 
due to the personal friendship between then Secretary Kerry and Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif, that these people were someone that the United States could deal with. And there was also, and this goes back to the Obama administration, a prevailing assumption that a strong Iran could be a stabilizing factor in the Middle East, that Israel was fundamentally destabilizing, potentially dragging the United States into another war. And then on the other hand, though, if you have a stronger Iran, that would balance Israel and create a more level playing field. I've heard these words out of them in the region. So, you know, that is fundamentally different from what we had in the Trump administration, which was the assumption that Iran was not a reasonable actor, could not be trusted, and that Israel is the United States' greatest both ally and asset in the Middle East, and that we want to strengthen Israel and then starve Iran of resources to prevent them from spreading violent mayhem across the Middle East. And the Biden folk, the heirs of the Obama policy, have just taken the absolute opposite approach. It's doubly amazing to me because the State Department has consistently, under both Democrats and Republicans, listed Iran as the leading sponsor of state terrorism in the world. You have to sort of step past all of that and the various international reports that they're cheating on trying to build a nuclear weapon and somehow conclude almost like a fantasy world that somehow there are reasonable people. I was with Secretary of Defense Bob Gates at one point. He said these people keep talking about moderate Iranians. Well, he was on the original trip with Zbigniew Brzezinski to meet with the Iranians to try to work out an agreement and we were prepared to give them money. We were prepared to give them material to fix their various American manufactured military capabilities. And we go through this list, and the Iranians go, we want the Shah. We need to have the Shah so we can have a show trial and killing. And they go back through, we can't do that, but here's all the things we can do. And they said, we don't care about any of those. We want the Shah. And Gates just said, when people tell me that there are moderates in the Iranian government, I just think that they're crazy. They have no idea who these people are. They're theocratic fanatics. And the whole business about chanting death to America and death to Israel, I mean, that's not just for show. That's what they want to do. And they have hits out on various American senior officials from the previous administration who are still under protective details. They threatened me personally in January with a video calling for my assassination. This is very personal. And when they did get the relief under the original Obama-era nuclear deal and hundreds of billions of dollars were pouring into the country because of the increased oil sales, you can look at their expenditures. Did they spend that money on the suffering Iranian people? Did they spend that money on infrastructure or healthcare or any of the things you might expect a normal government to spend it on? No. Basically, dollar for dollar, it went into their military. It went to their terrorist proxies, such as Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthi. It went into their own terrorist apparatus, the IRGC, which we very proudly designated as a foreign terrorist organization, to define the activities of the Iranian government, not just as sponsorship of terrorism, but as actually participant in terrorism. That's what they did with their money because they want to kill their enemies. And if you imagine that you can somehow talk them out of that, you're just in for a world of hurt.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. When the Trump administration killed General Soleimani, that was taken as a very direct personal assault on the Iranian dictatorship, and they've been actively trying to get even ever since. Well, they have, but you notice that during the last year, the Soleimani hit was on the 3rd of January 2020, because that was when I was Deputy National Security Advisor for the Middle East. And for the following year, The Iranians really didn't do that much. Their regime is a bully. And if you push back very strongly against a bully, and that was President Trump's decision when he made the decision on Soleimani, is that they had pushed far enough. And if we did not push back strongly, we were going to have just these sort of endless provocations until we got to a potentially escalatory point. But it worked for that year. But once the Biden administration came in and, you know, immediately took the Houthi off the terrorist list, you know, started all certain you know, outreach negotiations for the Frankenstein JCPOA 
Then they started ratcheting up their terrorist activity, even in Europe. We've been uncovering a series of plots as well as activities in the United States. You have this deep conflict over what the Iranian regime is like. You had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying that the Russians would be in Kiev in three days. You had the intelligence estimate that the Taliban could not occupy Kabul very quickly. At what point should we be deeply concerned that the intelligence system is simply not working very well? Well, I think we should have reached that point about two years ago, that everything they did for these first two years of the administration appears to be based on false assumptions. And some of that might be problems with the intelligence community. I think certainly reforms to the intelligence community are always in order and looking at our priorities. And if China is our priority, then we need to shift all sorts of resources and assets to make sure we are doing everything we need to provide our senior decision makers with the best possible information. But at the same time, the intelligence is a neutral. It doesn't have a bent one way or the other. It's information. It's what you do with it. It's how people ingest it and then how they process it. And I fear the problem here is the administration is getting a lot of information, but they're seeing what they want to see. They're not looking at things that are unpleasant or perhaps don't support their worldview. The main problem that they are always going to have in dealing with China is the fact that they need to get to their prime directive, which is net zero carbon emissions, they have to make some sort of deal with China, the world's largest polluter, or else that's simply not possible. Now, you and I might agree that China is never going to do that in good faith, but for the administration, they are just hell-bent and determined to get to some agreement like this. That was the purpose of Secretary Blinken's trip that got postponed by the spy balloon episode. But it seems to me they're just living in an alternate reality driven by priorities that are not the priorities of most Americans. To go back to Russia for just a minute, when Putin announced that he was withdrawing from the New START Treaty, which was the last of the arms control agreements, other than being just sort of a signal of toughness, I mean, do you think it has any real meaning? Well, you know, I think it does signal toughness. I mean, this was bad from a couple of different angles. President Biden, and I believe February of 2020, so shortly after they came into office, offered Russia a unilateral five-year extension of New START. He didn't have to do that. We knew the Russians were cheating. President Trump was looking very carefully after we got out of the INF to get out of New START because the fundamental problem is, A, the Russians are cheating. B, it doesn't bind the Chinese in any way. So you have the United States unilaterally restricting our defenses, I guess, for the good of humanity. You have a fundamentally bad treaty that Biden wanted to stay in, I guess, because they just like these international agreements. So Biden looks like he's pleading with Putin. Putin is the one who's saying, no, you know, I won't have any of this. I mean, I would say good riddance to bad rubbish. This is a excellent opportunity for the United States to revisit our nuclear posture, freed from what I've always thought was a horrible treaty, and figure out how we are going to now rebuild our nuclear arsenal to confront both Russia and China. Because obviously, originally, when we developed these assets, they were really just aimed at the Soviet Union. Now we have another significant foe in this theater. To what degree do you also 
have concern about North Korea, Pakistan, other countries that now have acquired nuclear weapons? This is an enormous concern. And I think when we're looking at the bucket with North Korea and Pakistan, we have to assume Iran is either in that bucket already or is about to become in that bucket because I'm sure Russia and China are thinking, wow, if we help out the Iranians in their pursuit of a nuclear weapon, that's really going to tie the United States in knots. And as you look at particularly North Korea, which is in many ways a proxy state for China, China uses the North Koreans all the time to do their dirty work. And the fact of the matter is North Korea cannot exist without China. It is their only access to banking, their access to trade. So the notion that the North Koreans are somehow independent actors from Beijing is peddled by Beijing so they don't get blamed for North Korea's bad behavior. So the proliferation of nuclear weapons to states like North Korea and Pakistan is so deeply dangerous. And for those of us who are old enough to remember who A.Q. Khan is, that proliferation out of Pakistan, I still don't think we fully understand where all that information and material went. And so we still may have nasty surprises waiting for us. And the fact of the matter is, is we did not predict the North Korean nuclear test. We did not predict the Pakistan and the Indian tests. We have to be prepared for any number of rogue states who may or may not have been pursuing this capability to just spring a test on us one day to give us trouble. It seems to me, at least, that it's a dramatically more complicated uh, national security challenge than the Cold War, because there you have basically a binary between the United States and the Soviet Union. Now you have multiple actors, some of whom may be very unstable. Absolutely. And to get back to the Russia-China axis for a moment, if Xi goes to Moscow, which is what Putin has said is going to happen in the spring, one of the other misassumptions that the administration has been laboring under is that they can somehow make a deal with China on Ukraine, that China might act to restrict Russian aggression or Russian use of nuclear weapons. It's been my belief that the only way that, that China would put any brakes on Russia is if they thought they were going to get cut off from the dollar or from something significant in the West. So it would cost them more than they would gain. But now they're pretty confident that's not going to happen. So they are not going to be, no matter how much Tom Friedman thinks that they might, they are not going to be a good partner on Ukraine. And I think the only message we should be sending them on that is that we consider them complicit in anything that Russia may do because they are emerging as this kind of double-headed monster, which, as you say, creates a much more complicated scenario than the Cold War. And that wasn't a whole lot of fun. Yeah, they have clearly been moving towards a, I think, a genuine alliance. I mean, you see it almost month by month developing where the Chinese, the Iranians, and the Russians basically take on the Western liberal democracies in what is in many ways a war of attrition. It is. And, you know, I guess the good news for us is I am of the opinion that neither the Russians nor the Chinese have true allies the way we do. They have vassals, they have dependents, they have arrangements of convenience, but they don't have strong, positive ideological connections with other nations the way the United States does. I mean, they don't have a United Kingdom, an Israel, a Canada. The list goes on. And the great hopeful thing is 
we're looking at a country like Japan, one of our great allies in the Pacific, looking at significant rebuilding of their military. 75 years ago, they were a deadly enemy that we had bombed with atomic weapons. Here we are 75 years later through the perseverance of both the Japanese and American people, we've established this tremendous relationship of great mutual benefit. And so, you know, I think it was Churchill who said something to the effect of the only thing worse than having allies is not having them. There are always challenges in these relationships, but I think that is the great strength of ours as this new sort of board comes into view and we see what's going on with the Russians, Chinese and Iranians, that as powerful as those relationships might be, we have a much stronger power base if we are confident and show strong leadership and bring those allies along with us. There are some reports that Israel has identified 3,000 target points in Iran and that it is conceivable that they will preemptively take out the Iranians because they are so determined not to allow them to have nuclear weapons because of the extraordinary vulnerability of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and the concentrated population in Israel. It would be the equivalent of a second Holocaust. Do you think that's plausible that they would actually attempt something on that scale? Well, it's certainly possible. And one of the great investments of the U.S. taxpayer, particularly over the last 20 years, has been in support for Israel's defenses. And so they have really extraordinary capabilities up to and including the Israeli version of the F-35. And then the other thing they have now that they didn't have five years ago is coordination with Gulf countries, like openly with Bahrain and UAE in particular, to support them in the event that such an action would be necessary. But even the tacit approval of Saudi Arabia, which again, not to date myself, but to go back, I mean, to think that you would have overflight of Saudi Arabia by Israel is an extraordinary development. And then even thoughts that there might be some kind of official rapprochement between those governments is a tremendous change. And I think that's something the Iranians look at with grave concern. But in terms of their capabilities, what concerns me is they are going to need significant support from the United States to carry out an operation of this scale. And I worry, you know, I remember when John Kerry, during one of the Gaza uprisings, paused transfers of missiles to Israel because they wanted to review them. I mean, that's not what you do to an ally that's in the middle of a shooting war with a terrorist enemy. You send them what they need. And if you want to go back and review, you do that after the shooting's done. And so I worry this administration would be slow walking support for Israel the way they're slow walking support for Ukraine because they don't want to get in the middle of this. And if the Israelis get to the point where they feel they have to take action, you want America in there with them. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. You mentioned support for Ukraine. We've provided over $100 billion so far in both military and non-military aid. And I have sort of two sets of questions. One, do you think overall this has been used pretty effectively and with a minimum amount of corruption, given the record that Ukraine used to have as a very corrupt culture? You know, I do. At the Heritage Foundation, we host a large number of Ukrainian, both civil society groups and government officials to keep our lines of dialogue constantly open. And the Ukrainians have been very open about what they're trying to do in terms of anti-corruption issues. They know that one of two very bad things they could be doing with these aid dollars is A, letting them be siphoned off to corrupt officials or B, somehow being stockpiled to do contracts with Chinese state-owned entities, which is another problem we can get to later. So I think the corruption issue is being attended to. I'm sure there's some to some degree. And that's one of the messages I've tried to send the Ukrainians, which is don't try to lobby or get around the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives. Embrace these people. Tell Marjorie Taylor Greene, please pass your audit. Help us show you what we are doing in this department, that we are trying to both use this aid in the manner that it was intended, but then also build a new economy that will be free of this endemic bedeviling corruption that we have had. 
Unfortunately, I don't think the aid packages that have been passed so far have been as targeted on lethal military aid as we would recommend. You know, the president's announcement last week that we were going to be building hospitals and most extraordinarily putting something in Ukrainians' pockets. I mean, that's not the job of the U.S. taxpayer. If that aid is going to be given, it can be given through Brussels. That should be a European burden. But I don't think we should be building a welfare state in Ukraine right now. I really think Congress is well within its purview to start questioning these requests for aid. And nothing the president said in Warsaw gives me any confidence that he's going to come to Congress with something that would be palatable to the folks that are concerned about the scale and the duration of this commitment. You just did an op-ed called The Russia-Ukraine War of One Year. The Biden administration owes the 118th Congress more answers. And you have a whole set of questions. You basically are saying that They don't have a clear strategy, or at least they haven't communicated it. They don't have a clear sense of the funding request over the next year. He has not really looked at the depth of change we need in our intelligence after the failures at the beginning of the war. And he doesn't really have a clear statement of what do we want the outcome to be? I mean, just giving the Ukrainians enough equipment to keep killing Russians without winning the war, it seems to me, is a very immoral position because it's putting the Ukrainians in a position of dying without having adequate resources to win. I mean, having them fight the Russians to a draw is going to cost so many Ukrainian lives that it will be a catastrophe for the country. It really will. And that's what's sort of maddening about all of this is why weren't we doing the sorts of things they're talking about really over the last three months, which would be the Patriots, the Abrams, and now we have the big debate over fighter jets. Why weren't we doing that in July if we wanted to save Ukrainian lives and bring this to an end? But I agree with you. I don't understand the moral justification for continuing the slaughter. If we are not willing to do what is necessary and that we are eminently capable of doing, now the sort of weakness of Putin's vaunted war machine has been revealed. If we're not willing to do what is necessary to win, what are we gaining beyond more carnage You know, by staying at the current levels of support? And one other thing you know, that I'd like to point out is the just... I think shameful politicization of this issue by the president, the exploitation of Zelensky when he was basically with a gun to his head brought over to address the Congress in the very last days of the 117th. You know, imagine how much more powerful that would have been if he would have waited into for a couple of weeks and come and been in front of a Speaker McCarthy and a Vice President Harris and talk to all Americans But what was the priority for the president was jamming that $1.7 trillion omni through, only $46 billion of which, I mean, let that sink in, only $46 billion of which was for Ukraine. But they wrapped it in the Ukrainian flag and said you were a Putin sympathizer if you didn't vote for it. And I think that is what is also giving conservatives a lot of pause, is that Ukraine is being used as a wedge, an enabler for the just rampant, disgraceful, wasteful, discretionary domestic spending of this administration. Biden seems to politicize virtually everything he talks about. I want to really wrap up with another article you wrote, in this case with Congressman Chip Roy in the Wall Street Journal. You said it's entitled, A Healthy Budget Makes for a Strong Military. Can you explain that? Chip is a 
dear friend of some decades. And we've been talking about these issues for many years and how we sort of square fiscal conservatism with a strong United States national defense. And the administration and many Republicans will give you a binary choice that if we want cuts to discretionary domestic spending, then we have to do dollar for dollar cuts to defense. And that has to be rejected out of hand. I mean, universal health care and whatnot is not mandated by the Constitution. Providing for the common defense is. And so this should not be some kind of bargaining chip. And we can discuss what are appropriate defense levels, what we need. We need to not be spending a lot of things on algae fuel for the Navy or some of their other pet projects. We have to look very carefully, as we were just discussing, at the nuclear future of the United States, what that posture looks like. We have to look at our Navy. We have many things that demand our attention. But what we can't do is drag the country into a debt-to-GDP ratio that prevents us from doing what we need to do militarily in the event that we are confronting China. And that's where these reports about Ukraine are so scary. That was something that maybe seemed like it was some years down the road. Well, maybe it isn't. Maybe China is moving into Ukraine in a way that will demand some sort of American response. And if we don't use the current debt sailing debate to try to start turning this ship so that we begin the process of getting to a balanced budget, I'm not under any illusions. I know we're hoping for a 10-year timeline. It may well take longer than that. But if we don't start now, we will not have the economic heft, which in many ways is our greatest weapon, to do what we're going to need to do to build up the way we did for, say, World War II. Seems to me that there's an opportunity here to modernize national security, eliminate a great deal of the red tape and the bureaucracy, and actually end up with a more dynamic and more aggressive and more capable defense than just pouring money into the current bureaucracy without change. That, in fact, it's the very nature of the current defense bureaucracy, plus the woke policies being imposed on it. The two combine, I think, to really dramatically weaken our capacity to accelerate past the Chinese. But I'd be curious to get your reaction the idea that if we modernize the military, that we really have to because the current bureaucracy just is not going to be capable of modernizing at the rate of the Chinese. One of the things that's been sort of grabbing at my attention in recent years is the expansion of the national security portfolio. And it's one reason I've now declared a ban on the words foreign policy, although they're actually in my title. So I'm not maybe not being terribly successful. But I think we need to talk about national security, and it will have the traditional elements of our military, but it is also going to have things like energy and immigration and now federal budget issues that we have to consider in this context. So a 21st century approach would have to take all of that into consideration and make the United States far more nimble and creative in the way that we approach our defenses. We are in many ways still mired in many Cold War postures. And so with this new Congress and in the hopes of additional gains in the Senate, 
coming up in the next cycle. I think all the work that we can do now to lay that legislative foundation, what would that look like? How would you pull the separate vehicles? I mean, this is when, you know, those of us who have participated in the Congressional Congress can geek out to our delight. But I mean, there are various ways you could approach this, but getting the serious people on national defense. And I would say we need a range of views from Chip's views to Representative Gallagher's views, Senator Cruz's views to Senator Cotton's views. These are all patriots who largely agree on these issues, but bring different perspectives and getting all of those views together and figuring out how we're going to tackle this next generation of modernization is a huge task for the next 18 months and then for whoever is in the next Congress and the next administration. I think we're in deep agreement on that. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me, and I really appreciate your insights, your whole approach where you've both been in the middle of the fight, you've studied the fight, what you're doing at Heritage is really, really important. I agree with you, this is a war we have to win. I think if Putin were to win, the world would become enormously more dangerous almost overnight. And we have to recognize that it's a war that has multiple opponents from Russia to China to Iran, and that we're going to have to design a strategy of victory that takes that into account. But I also really appreciate your support for Ukraine's fight for democracy and for freedom. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a privilege to be able to exchange views with you, and I hope you all enjoy the warm weather. Thank you to my guest, Victoria Coates. You can get a link to her Wall Street Journal op-ed on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.